Hi, this is Colin McCallan. Thank you for listening. Please do us a favor and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you. Welcome to Is This Legal? Here are your hosts, attorneys Colin McCallan and Russell Hebbets. Greetings, one and all. So nice to have you all for another episode of Is This Legal? My name is Colin McCallan. Who's this guy over here? Russell Hebbets. And I like how you threw the y'all in there since, <laughs> since we're down in South Carolina low country. Yeah. Pardon me if I just kind of slip into that uh, low country drawl, you know, but we are talking about Alex Murdaugh again, um, as is a lot of people in this country. I mean, this is, this is a big, big case right now. This is certainly gripping the nation. It's kind of like headline news every single day. And uh, the case is over, Russ. Uh, at the time that we are recording this, the case is with the jury. We do not know a verdict yet. They just got the case this afternoon. Closing arguments have finished up. We just spent last episode giving the listener kind of an overview of all of the legal challenges that are facing Alex Murdaugh right now. In this episode, we're, Russ, we're going to get a little bit more dialed in. We're going to get a little bit more focused. Let's we're going to turn that zoom all the way to the right, you know? Let's talk about what people want to hear about. Which is this trial. Exactly. And specifically, Alex Murdaugh made the very interesting choice to take the stand in his own defense. And that is going to be the crux of this podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about that decision. We're going to talk about why we think his attorneys, um, or why Alex himself, uh, decided to testify. We're going to talk about the drawbacks of that decision. And at the end of the podcast, we're going to give you our own two cents about what we would have done if we were Alex's attorneys. Would we have recommended that he testify, or we would we have recommended, hey, sit down, Alex, you've said enough? And and for anyone who's been on like a, a six-week walkabout in the backcountry, um, first, go listen to our last podcast because we laid out all of Alex Murdaugh's legal, legal woes, but we are talking about the attempted or the uh, completed murder of his wife and his son. That's what he's been on trial for for the past six weeks. That's a right. Double homicide. That's right. So um, it, it's a really interesting discussion. We're going to have, of course, a DCOTW later, and we're going to play Is This Legal at some point in this podcast. But Russ, let's, let's kind of talk about where we are. I mean, this is a six-week trial. There was a ton of testimony. Uh, you know, what, what is the defense saying? What is the defense trying to communicate to the jury about why their client, Alex Murdaugh, is not guilty of these crimes? So the defense is essentially saying the prosecution did not present enough evidence to prove Alex Murdaugh guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. That's the standard in any criminal trial in the U.S. justice system. You have to prove someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And the defense is saying, you're missing so many pieces of that puzzle there is literally no physical or forensic evidence tying Alec, Alex Murdaugh to these murders. There's no blood splatter. There's no gunshot residue on his hands. There's no eyewitnesses. There's no video evidence. And the police, the defense says, made tons of errors. So, I mean, I'll give you an example of that last thing, Colin. For the crime scene, this was the worst secured crime scene that I have ever come across. You're talking about bodies, two bodies out in nature with rain coming down 
They're covered with cotton sheets. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last time I checked, cotton sheets were not waterproof. I, I think that's still correct. Some witnesses testified that rain was coming off the roof of the dog kennels and falling onto one of the bodies. Okay. When you're outside in nature, evidence goes away, it dissipates incredibly quickly. You have to preserve absolutely everything. They preserved essentially nothing. There were tons of first responders walking around the crime scene, muddying up any, any forensic evidence on the ground. They sent, the police sent onlookers, and there were a ton of people who came to the scene, just, just people in the community because this was a big deal. The police sent everyone to the main house to go hang out in the main house wow. and tidy up the main house. You think that may have been part of the murder scene? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it absolutely could have. Yeah. So that's what the defense is saying. It was a botched investigation. You can't trust the police, and what you do have doesn't tie him to the murders. But I'll tell you one thing they're also doing, Russ, I think to a very large degree. They are trying very, very hard to humanize their client, the defense is. They are trying to humanize Alex Murdaugh. They're trying to, you know, they're, they're trying to get rid of that persona that the prosecution is trying to manufacture, that of a, a cold-blooded killer who's going to take out his own family to get rid of some debt. That's essentially what the prosecution's theory is. You know, the defense, of course, is going, no, 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 this man was a loving husband. This man was a loving father. He was devoted to his son, pa, Papa as um, Alec kept referring him to. I mean, and that's very deliberate, by the way. Right. You're, you're, this isn't Paul Murdoch. No, this was my son, Papa. I guarantee you that was, uh, you know, every time he uses those terms of endearment, it was, it was because, of course, he's a smart guy. He knows the effect this is going to have on people. Yeah. But where I'm going, of course, with this is they, they, they're really trying to show there's no way this man could have done this horrible, heinous thing to his wife and son. Right, absolutely. And, you know, for anyone out there who, you know, doesn't know, these, his testimony, I guarantee you, was extremely well-practiced. Mm-hmm. You know, now not memorized, because you don't want it to look practiced, but it was practiced. Right. Like, he went through, he knew exactly what questions were going to be asked, certainly exactly the questions his team asked him, and a really good idea of what questions the prosecution was going to ask on cross-examination. And he absolutely went through it tons of times until it was basically a performance. Mm -hmm. Okay, Now, that doesn't mean necessarily it was untrue. Right. But it certainly was a performance, and it was with the goal of humanizing him, like you said. That's right. I mean, for a case like this, I can just about guarantee it, he probably would have spent hours uh, rehearsing you know, both direct and uh, mock cross-examinations in preparation for this. This isn't a situation where, you know, lawyers just say, oh, well, what, what do you think, Alex? You want to testify today? All right, let's, let's go up and see how it goes. <laughs> and, and we're not talking a few hours. Well, yeah. I mean, we're talking maybe 100 hours. Right. This might, right? This might have take, taken weeks to prepare. Right. And, and you know, uh, I mean, Russ and I do this with our clients when, uh, when we're getting ready for a trial. Honestly, we do this whether or not they're going to testify. We may elect to have them not testify, but we are still going to be ready just on the off chance that they that, that they are going to testify or want to testify. We're going to prepare them for that. And I'm telling you, folks, um, if you have never been cross-examined before, you, you have no idea what is about to come your way. Right. It is, it, it is very unpleasant. 
you are going to feel boxed in. You're going to feel frustrated at times. You're going to want to lash out. I mean, normal human behavior is going to want to kind of kick in and protect you. You're going to feel an immense amount of pressure. This is everyone, all eyes on you, even if you are a practiced public speaker, all eyes on you and like they're... The stakes couldn't be higher. Right. Right. This is for him life in prison. Right. Right. So this, this would have been uh, practiced uh, many, many, many times. And honestly, I, I, I got that vibe from uh, watching Alex testify. We're going to talk more specifically about his body language and stuff later. Um, But Russ, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the testimony itself now. So um, again, we're going to later talk about whether or not we think it was a good idea, but that, horse has left the barn. He's testified. Let's talk about what he said and kind of where the points were scored for both the defense and the prosecution. First of all, let's talk about the actual murder itself, Russ. What did he say about the homicides and specifically his whereabouts during the homicide? This was the biggest thing that came out of his testimony. Um, So here's what happened. He told the law enforcement investigators at the time that He wasn't at the scene. He wasn't at the dog kennels. The dog kennels is where his wife and son were murdered. He said he was not there. He said he was at the main house or on his way to see his mother who has Alzheimer's. He he had no idea what was going on there. He wasn't there. No idea, right? So, and that's what he maintained from the initial time he was contacted for months afterwards. That was what he maintained. That sounds good, Russ. What's the problem? Until, (laughs) he maintained that, Colin, until a video came to light from Paul's phone, his deceased son's phone, that was a Snapchat video that had his voice in the background. Alex's voice. Alex's voice in the background and was taken within minutes of the murders. Yeah, within three or four minutes, I believe. Yes, yeah, right. Three or four minutes prior to the murder, a video was taken and... Lo and behold, there's Alex Murdaugh's voice on the video. Right. So this is... At the kennels. ...a tremendously large lie that the prosecution is really trying to shine a spotlight on, right? I mean, this is a guy who is lying about where he was at the time of the murder. He said he was not down... He had not been down at the dog kennel earlier that evening. That's what he had previously told investigators. And now we've got this recording showing actually that's not true. He was there. And before he testified, the prosecution played that video... And they asked witnesses, hey, is that Alex Murdaugh's voice on that video? And what, like... About a dozen. A dozen said, yes, that's Alex Murdaugh's voice. Yeah. Okay. So they had so they had him at the scene, whether he testified or not. Right. Right? They had that. Right. And, and they also had law enforcement saying, he told me he wasn't at the scene. Right? So that lies out there, whether he testifies or not. Right. So he testifies, Colin. What's his explanation? His explanation, he, he, he comes out and says, yes, I lied to investigators. Right. I mean, he had to say that, had I think. To. Had to. <laughs> He's like, yes, that is my voice on that recording. And he basically kind of says, well, yeah, I was down at the kennel for just a minute, and I went up at the, back to the house to take a brief nap, then I went over to my mom's house. And they said, well, why did you lie, and would, lie to investigators about that? And his response was, well, I have an opioid addiction. And right. I had a bottle of pills with me actually when they were investigating me. And I, 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 I didn't, I, w- I was afraid of what they would think of my addiction. 
Yeah, he said he was actually paranoid because he was addicted to opioids, and he also had a mistrust of law enforcement. Right. So he didn't trust the investigators, and he was paranoid from his opioid addiction and wasn't thinking clearly, and he had a a pill bottle on him. He was worried about it being investigated. Yeah. Colin, all of those responses are Weak, 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 weak. Talking about a double homicide investigation, and you're worried about whether or not the cops are going to think you have a pill problem. Right. I, I don't, I, that doesn't, and, and then that really doesn't also explain why lie to the police anyway, then? Like, I mean, it, it's one thing to not talk to the police if you're mistrustful of them. Why actually give them false information? Well, okay, all of that. And how about this? Okay. For if I'm the prosecution, okay. He was not thinking clearly because of this opioid addiction. Maybe he wasn't thinking clearly enough to kill his wife and son, too, because he's admitting that he's not thinking, he's not in his right state of mind. Right. Or how about this? So he, he lies to the police because he doesn't trust law enforcement. He is a part-time solicitor. That's a district attorney. That is someone who prosecutes people. That's someone who works hand-in-hand with law enforcement right. all the time. Right. You let's, have a great... let's remember who this family is, <laughs> the Murdoch family, the, the, you know, the, 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 century, almost, the, the century-long prosecution family of whatever county this is, uh, the 14th Judicial District in South Carolina. Uh, generational wealth, tons of connections, and he's afraid of... He's telling af- the truth? I don't get it. He's afraid of telling the truth to the people he works hand in hand with all right. the time. I mean, these are the people that he calls the local sheriff to make little problems for his kids go away. Exactly. So, um, so just that like does not ring true at all. However, if he hadn't testified, it would have just been hanging out there. Right. And, w- and again, we're going to talk about that more later. But let's let's uh, let's get into more of his lies because they're. I mean. Remember, one thing that happened during this trial, Russ and I talked about it a little bit at the, uh, during the last episode, is um, the judge is allowing the prosecution to get into a lot of these other investigations going on with Mr. Murdaugh in order to establish a possible motive for him, okay? So remember, the prosecution is basically saying that this, this, these, this double homicide of his wife and son may have been a distraction that he was attempting to create away from his other, you know, financial affairs that were being probed by these other attorneys, by these other lawsuits. I mean, he's accused of stealing from his uh, law firm. All of that evidence came in, Russ. He's accused of stealing from the housekeeper. All of that evidence came in. Uh, remember the cousin Eddie and the botched suicide? <laughs> crazy, <Eddie>. crazy, crazy <laughs> cousin Eddie. <laughs> uh, again, a, a fun dinner table discussion is uh, going around uh, the room and figuring out who you're related to that might help you try and you know Relate. fake your own death or you know commit insurance fraud. It makes it's a good good discussion. But anyway, all of this stuff is coming in. It has nothing to do with the murder, but the the, the common thread, which is why it was admissible, Russ is it shows a pattern of lying and deceit over and over again. And the prosecution is telling the jury he's lying to you, everybody. He's lying to investigators. Right. He's lying to anybody who will listen to him. And, and typically, all of that evidence would typically not come in in a trial. It came in because the defense, uh, the term is open the door. Right. Because they started asking questions to bolster his credibility, bolster his reputation. And once you do that, the other side gets to come in and rebut that. So that's why all of that comes in. That's right. And, you know, to your point, a central part 
of the prosecution's argument is that these murders were committed by Alex Murdoch to take the pressure off him to distract people from all of these other investigations that are going on. And we talked about all these in our prior podcast, but just that day, his chief financial officer of his law firm confronted him about missing and eventually um, confirmed embezzled money from the firm. And, you know, the timing does work out for that. It's tough for me to say you kill your wife and son because of that, but the timing really does work out for it. I mean, I think they're, 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 they're going after kind of the, the classic narcissist type of mentality. They're saying he was going to do anything it took to save his own butt, including, yeah. <laughs> including murder those closest to him. So on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about how he testified, how his performance was, some other things that he did that kind of cast doubt on his version of events. But before we get to those things... Let's go ahead and play Is This Legal? We'll be back on the other side of the break. All right, it is game show time because it is time to play uh, Is This Legal with you, the listener out there. Uh, this is, of course, where uh, we present you with a fictional legal scenario and ask you, the listener, is this legal? Um, you can talk about it with your listening buddies or, uh, you know, try and... Trying to go solo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you don't need anybody you, to play this game. You don't have to talk to people. <laughs> it's like solitaire. No team, no teammates required. All right, well, here we go. Uh, here is your scenario. Uh, more trouble for our buddy and beloved protagonist, or antagonist, depending on who you are, uh, Jebediah is who I'm referring to. Uh, this time, he is accused by Officer Cornelius of stealing a brand new motor car from his neighbor Myrtle. Jebediah gets charged with motor vehicle theft and pleads not guilty. He takes his case all the way to jury trial. Now, the judge asks whether or not he will testify, and he asks to confer with his lawyer. Jebediah knows that the prosecutor has a copy of his prior criminal history, which unfortunately has a few blemishes on it, most notably, Russ, uh, two felony convictions, one for fraud and one unfortunately, for motor vehicle theft. He asks his lawyer, will the prosecutor be able to ask me about these felony convictions? What answer, dear listener, should his lawyer provide? I'm actually borrowing the Jeopardy theme music yeah, now. Yeah, no. Oh, that's a copyright yeah, violation. Yeah, oh, don't, don't do that. that. <laughs> I know that from this podcast. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what am I, a lawyer? Um, all right, what do you guys think? You got your answer locked in. Is he going to be asked about those convictions? Russ, what's the answer? The answer is absolutely he will be asked about those convictions. Now, he's not going to be asked about them to show that he acted in conformity with them. So even though one of them is an auto theft, they're not going to be able to say, you stole a car before, so you stole it this time. But it comes in because they're felonies. Aha. Aha. So that word felony matters, huh? Matters big time. Any prior felonies. Doesn't matter if it's related to the actual crime you're on trial for or not, right? Correct. Felonies come in no matter what. Um, And crimes of moral turpitude could come in too. So the fraud one 
even if that were not a felony, would probably come in. No, the way that would happen is the prosecutor would basically be asked, he, he would be allowed to ask uh, Jebediah, you've been convicted for felony fraud, right? And date of the conviction, right? Yeah. And that's probably can't sen- go in, into right. the facts of the case, but that's about it. That's about it. But okay. still, that's oftentimes enough where if a jury knows that, that could swing some votes. That's right. So with that context, I have a follow-up for oh, you guys. and I love follow-ups. All right, so... When the judge asks whether or not Jebediah is going to testify, he tells the judge he wants to testify. Right when those words come out of his mouth, his attorney stands up and says, Your Honor, I object to the court taking my client's testimony. I have advised him that this is a horrible idea and I have wholeheartedly recommended to him that he not take the stand. And Your Honor, he should not take the stand. What is a judge going to do? Is the judge going to listen to the attorney or is the judge going to allow Jebediah to testify over his own attorney's objection? Wow, man. Gosh, Jebediah is now, he's fighting with his attorney in the uh, middle of trial. Never a good sign. Oof, just the guy, the guy just has everything break against him, it well, seems like. I mean, it seems like the wagon wheels have come off. <laughs> So, folks, uh, the answer to this question is uh, 100% Jebediah will testify. Yeah. Um, The person who controls their right to testify or not testify is the client or defendant himself. The lawyer is able to scream at Jebediah until he's blue in the face saying, hey, this is a terrible idea. You shouldn't do this for X, Y, and Z reasons. Jebediah is completely at liberty to ignore that and take the stand in his own defense. So the judge will allow testimony in this case. The the, The lawyer has no right to object. Absolutely. So hopefully you guys both got, you got both of those right. Um, or maybe you went one for one. As yeah. everyone knows, it happens we, we in McAllen. Round up. <laughs> we, Everybody's a winner. We, we do rough math here. <laughs> That's why we're lawyers. <laughs> this isn't the algebra podcast, is it? <laughs> I was told there'd be no math on this test. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for playing with us. Uh, we're going to get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. So let's keep going with his, Murdaugh's, testimonial performance, okay? Because as we said before, it is a performance. It's not just what he said, Russ. It's how he said it. All right. Well, Colin, how did he say it? What were your... Because you, you watched part of it, yeah, right? I, 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 I did watch part of it. I watched uh, a, a decent chunk of his direct, and I watched a decent chunk of his cross-examination by Creighton Waters, the prosecutor. Um, and here's what I thought. Like you... Overall, I thought he did well. I mean, he, he's, he's a good witness in that he's very measured and has tempo to his responses. That's really important, okay? Um, he, he, he never got flustered. He, he, you know, he, he would get emotional at the right places. Um, if anything, he was a very slow witness, meaning he spoke very slowly. He would ask to have questions repeated back to him. Um, now, a lot of people will tell you that that's, that, you know, that's the sign of a liar or a manipulator. They, if, if they're confronted with uh, a question that they don't immediately know the answer to, they might say, sir, sir could, you, could you repeat the question to give themselves a few more moments to uh, formulate the answer? I say that because there were times that the prosecutor said that he was doing that while he was being interviewed, and I saw a couple of those instances myself when he was testifying. Um, little thing, but you know, it it just it, it, something I observed. Um, so, but overall, I thought he he was very good in his responses. Now, is this, does that mean he was perfect? Does that mean he's going to get acquitted? Um, 
that that's a completely different question. Russ, what was your takeaway? So I thought he did well. Like I said before, I thought he seemed um, believable and sincere, right? He came across to me as sincere. Um, but keep in mind, like humans are notoriously bad as lie detectors. Right. There have been studies, there have been peer-reviewed scientific studies that show that we are actually slightly worse than flipping a coin to decide if someone is lying or not. Like there have been just scientific studies where the, the people running the study know if someone's lying or not. And they say they, they ask the questions with observers and the observers get it wrong wow. more than they get it right. How about that? And I, so, I would think a lot of us out there think that we are pretty good right. at detecting lies. I agree. We, we probably think we're better than that. Yes. I mean, uh, I think almost everyone would think we're better than that. So ultimately, though, he came across well, right? He came across well. Um, so we'll see, and we'll let you know at the end of this if we thought it was a mistake or not to put him on. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit more about, because we're talking about this as a performance. Right. And if he was not telling the truth on the stand, if he was lying, and that's a big if because we don't know, but if that's the case, is that consistent with other things that he has done throughout the pendency of this investigation? And I, I would say that it is because there have been other witnesses who testified that Alex Murda tried to manipulate their testimony. So what do you mean by that? What are, what are some examples of what you're talking about here? So I have two specific examples for you. He has a housekeeper. The housekeeper helped him in the morning of the murder, um, sent him on his way, and she very vividly recalls what he was wearing. And his outfit is a point of contention throughout this trial. We didn't talk about it. Right. But people said he was wearing something different earlier versus what he was wearing when the police showed up. Right. right. Implying that he changed his clothes, and why would he change his clothes? Right. right. Yeah, maybe because there's blood splatter on him. Right. Yeah. Um, so the housekeeper very clearly said, yep, he was wearing you know shorts and a shirt. He, a couple months later, according to her testimony, came up to her and said, yeah, you remember I was wearing the Vineyard Vines shirt on the morning of the murder. He just came up to her out of the blue and said, hey, yeah. do you remember <laughs> that whole thing? Do you remember that Vinny Vines shirt that I was wearing? Uh, right. And I, I don't know how, how smooth he was with it, but it was not smooth enough where it stuck out in her mind because she knew what he was wearing. Right. She testified she fixed his collar that morning. Wow. So she definitely knew what shirt, and it wasn't the one he was telling her. Right. So the other example we have is, you know, he said he went to his mother's place to visit her who has Alzheimer's, who has a caretaker. And he went back to the caretaker and tried to tell her, yeah, I was there like 30, 40 minutes. You remember? And she said, no, you know, you were there for 20 minutes. And he kept insisting it was longer. And he was so insistent that it shook her up enough where she called her brother, who's in law enforcement, wow. to say... Hey, he just did this. You know, I mean, there's there's a couple other just observations about his testimony. Again, some things he did well, some things he didn't do well. He he, I thought he was he was very good uh, at showing emotion when he was talking about uh, his wife and his son. Um, you know, but uh, there there's another instance though when he was being asked by his lawyer, "Okay, did you shoot either of these people?" 
and Russ, he did he did the old um, he was nodding his head physically, yes, but he he said no, I did not have anything to do with her death. While he's nodding his head, and I, rookie uh, mistake, I, Alex. I, I mean, a, rookie look, mistake. Is that evidence of anything? No. Uh, but there are some people who will tell you that that's a tell. Okay, there, you know, there that that's a tell of, mis- of misinformation or, or of deception. You know, there, but then there's other things. I mean, he's like kind of hunched over during his testimony, mostly on direct. And and I guarantee you, if I were his lawyer, I would have said, "Look like you're kind of hunched over. Look like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. You know, look like you're beaten down." I think he came across that way. Um, but the other thing too, I think that he does well is he he is able to make himself seem maybe less smart or sophisticated than he really is. He's very, very folksy. He speaks with that really thick drawl. You know, he's kind of a good old boy. You know, he's, right. he's honestly very, you, you'd probably like him. If you didn't know anything else about him and you walked into a room and started talking to him for five minutes, he seems like he's very uh, uh, charismatic, very, uh, you know, easygoing. Um, and I think that personality plays well yeah, for him. Right. Again, is that going to be enough to overcome this mountain of lies that he also admitted to on the stand? Who knows? Right. But those were just a couple of other observations I made just watching him. Yeah, he's clearly more sophisticated than that. You know, he's been in criminal justice for his whole life, right. generationally, his father, his grandfather, maybe his great-grandfather. Um, so he knows he knows how to do things like create alibis, how to testimo- testify, how to theoretically dispose of evidence. Well, and I right? watched the prosecutor's uh, closing argument, and one thing I think that, that they they were very effective in pointing out is uh, the prosecutor actually said, he's a really good liar, yeah. folks. This, I mean, they basically said he's lying to your face and you may not even know it. He's that good. And I think they needed to do that. I think because, because I think he is that good. Right. Um, I, I think he, he knows exactly what he needs to do and say on a witness stand. Un- I, unless he's telling the truth. Exactly. Because we don't know yet. We don't verdict know yet. verdict right. has not come back. All right. So, Colin. Yeah. So, the whole point of this podcast yep. is, did he make a mistake by testifying? Did he, did, did he have to testify? I mean, what's, let, let's tell them our philosophy generally about having clients testify in their own defense. You know, I think, first of all, there's, I think the larger defense bar lives generally by the idea that you don't put your client on the stand unless you have to. Um, Russ and I, in recent years, have been paying attention to literature, which says that there might be benefits to putting your client on, uh, on the stand. And it doesn't work in every case, but you know, it, it gives, I, I'd say the, the main reason for putting any client on the stand is, is, is because you think that they are going to have some sort of appeal with the jury. You think they are going to have some sort of, whether it's sympathy, whether it's regret, whatever the emotion is, you're trying to get there there to be an emotional connection with your client and with the jury. It's exactly what we've been talking about this whole time, where we said the defense put him on to humanize him. Right. Right? You want... He's not a defendant. He's a father. Right. He's a a husband. He's a member of the community. Exactly. Right? He's a member of your... He's like like you. This could be you up there. Right. Right? That's what you're trying to do. And like we said, he was effective at that. Here's, Here's another reason why it's a good idea for him to do it is because he had to... He really had to answer the question because the lie was coming out. Right. Right? Even if his answer was not ideal... 
it's better than it just hanging out there. And when you have something like that as a defense attorney, you need to take it head on. Right. Because if you don't take it head on, it's going to come and bite you in the ass. And if you notice what Russ is talking about, uh, his own attorneys asked him about all of these fraudulent misdeeds, all of these lies. They, you, you want to do that with your case. You don't want to wait for the prosecution to go through it. You, you know, if you're the, the attorney, you need, you need to confront your own client with this stuff almost in an aggressive way and say, you know, why did you lie, Alex? You, 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 know, you had an opportunity to tell him what happened. You didn't. Can you explain to the jury why? Right. And, and, and you're, you're also showing the jury that this person isn't perfect, that they made mistakes. And, and you're, 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 again, trying to get the person, to, the jury, to, to sympathize with that a little bit. Right. Now, yeah. coming back to the question in this particular case, Russ, um, would I have had Alex testify? Uh, a, I would say a reluctant yes. Right. Okay. I mean, I think they had to. Like you said, I think it's really weird if you don't have him testify and you've got that, that, that video showing that he was at the scene. He's got to have to explain that. Right. You know, you, if, if, if you're talking about showing that he is a devoted, loving father, husband. He has to get up and tell the jury how much he misses his wife and son and how devastated he is over their death. He's got to get up there and say it. Right. You yeah. Know? And, and so that's what they were trying to do, even knowing that they would have to deal with this pile of other stuff. Yeah. I, I, so I, th- I, I think it's an imperfect decision. Um, you know, there's a lot of problems with him testifying, but I think if I'm his attorney, I would have put him on. I agree. I agree. I don't always have my clients testify. But in this case, I think I agree with the defense. I think that you have to address the elephant sitting in the room. Yeah. You, you have to address it because it's there and the jury knows it's there. And you can't just let it let it sit there to rampage at will. <laughs> right. No, no. Just a legal note. Real quickly, the jury would be instructed. Let's say he didn't testify. The jury would actually be told by the judge, hey, if he elects to not testify, you can't use that against him in any way. And I would have expected his attorneys to question the jurors and during jury selection and say, look, if, if he doesn't testify, he has a right not to, you're not going to hold it against him, right? Um, and you kick jurors who say, oh, no, I'd require him to testify. Right. You know, so he would have, technically, the decision to testify or not testify is not supposed to harm him in any way. Right. Um, but obviously, he made the decision to testify. Well, and here's how it would have gone. Had he not testified, Colin, had he not testified, the defense can still speculate as to reasons why he would have lied. So they could have either said, you know, the 12 people were wrong or this was fabricated or, right. you know, whatever. Or they could have said, yeah, he was he was there and he lied to him. But here's why he might have. Right. You know, you can speculate in your closing argument. Right. It's not evidence, mm-hmm. right? There's no evidence, but you can speculate as to why he might have lied to investigators. Right. So they could have still gotten some of that. They could have still tried to put a reason in the jury's mind. The problem is it's not based on testimony. It's right. just pure speculation. Yeah. So, you know, th- I, I think if they had not called him to the stand, I, I, I don't know why it would. It, it feels like there would have been way, way too much that they wouldn't have been able to talk about with their own client, let him answer in their own questions, let, let, let him say in his own words why he did or didn't do something. Um, we'll see. All right, so Colin, we didn't talk about this before, so I'm about to surprise you, but let's, let's go ahead and get your opinion on the million-dollar question. Is he going to be found guilty or is he going to be acquitted? We do love predictions on this show. Um, and yeah, like I said, at the moment, uh, this recording, we have no idea what's going to happen. I, um, I think he's going to get convicted. I think there's too much 
Um, I, I think his defense team did a pretty good job with what they had. I feel like, though, uh, the, the prosecution has proven this beyond a reasonable doubt. I would expect him to be convicted. I would be surprised if he was acquitted. I agree. For me, it is just that central thing we're talking about the whole time. I don't think you can be at the scene of a double homicide minutes before, lie about it, and then expect to say, I had no idea what happened there. I had no idea what was going on. I just think it's too big a pill to swallow. And I agree. I am expecting him to be convicted. All right. Well, we are going to find out, but uh, let's uh, let's take our foot off that serious gas and put it on the the uh, nitrous, <laughs> the, the the laughing gas. <laughs> I'm glad you saved me because I had no idea where I was going with that. Thank you for coming to my rescue. It is time for. C-O-T-W. Oh, that's right. America's favorite segment. And I'll tell you what, Russ, this is, uh, this is a good one we got here. In fact, the listener might think this might be the smart criminal of the week. Right. Still dumb in terms of how we got there, but it, this is a pretty interesting one. Um, so, Russ, here's what we got. We're, go- we're going to Ukiah, California. Ukiah? Yeah, Ukiah. Um, summer of 2022, Thomas Houston, our DCOTW. And his wife, Laura, are married. Both are about 60 years old. Uh, They had been married for a long time, but uh, had been recently experiencing some marital strife and began living apart. Thomas has his neighbor, Anne, over to his house while he is there alone. You see, Anne keeps her llamas on Thomas's property, and she occasionally visits the llamas. That's what I assumed. Right, of course. (laughs) Who doesn't have a llama farm? So on this particular occasion, though, not sure if it was before or after visiting the llamas, but uh, Thomas and Anne consumed quite a bit of alcohol and decided to engage in some sexual activity, Russ. Here's the problem. Laura, the uh, current wife, the estranged wife, still gets surveillance video from the house, and she sees video of Anne over at the house drinking with her husband. Uh, feeling suspicious, she heads over to the house, walks in, and sees the pair engaged in a quite obvious sexual act. Yikes. Um, Yeah, and uh, Laura, of course, becomes enraged that her husband is cheating on her. And the neighbor becomes enraged that he is still married. Both of them start immediately beating down on Thomas, causing him to flee in his car uh, while at a BAC of .11. And he ends up getting arrested by the police about 200 yards away from his property. Uh, Russ, he gets charged with DUI, but uh, here's the redemptive part of the story. He pleads not guilty and asserts the defense of choice of evils. He argued that he had to drive drunk because he, he was being uh, harmed and assaulted by two angry women. Therefore, <laughs> he literally had no choice but to get out of the house and drive drunk. After a four-day trial, our hero was acquitted, Russ. Uh, so, I mean, again, that's why I say smart criminal of the week. He, he mounted the right defense, no idea what's going on with his marriage or his relationship with the law, uh, with the neighbor. And I have no update on the llamas. Um, oh, come on, <laughs> but that's what we got here, man. Um, so he actually, you know, well, normally our cases end with someone going to prison or, uh, the stocks or, you yeah. know, being humiliated in some fashion, not this guy. He's, he's, uh, 
Other than you get to read about him in the Daily Mail, which I'm, is where I got this article. I mean, I assume like his opening statement was "Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned." <laughs> um, I mean, I love it when I can work some Shakespeare into my trials. Oh man, what a defense, though, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think that this is a awesome story. Um, and yeah, dumb to get himself in that situation, but he's like. I mean, he's not unique yeah. in, in getting himself in a situation like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like that was uh, pretty smart. He, yeah. only, he only drove 200 yards. Right. So he just got away from the immediate beatdown. Yeah. And then... Um, Sounds like he didn't fight back. Didn't yeah, get charged with assault. That's smart. Yeah. That's smart. I mean, did they get charged with assault? Not that I can tell. Okay. Uh, you know, who's going to convict it's justified, them? Justified. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I'm, uh, so, knucklehead rating. We, we, rate our, uh, we rate the stupidity of our offender on a scale from one to five knuckleheads. Russ, I think I'm about to hand out my first one knucklehead. Yeah. I think this is the smartest criminal, the smartest dumb criminal we've ever dealt with. So, yeah. one knucklehead for you, Mr. Houston. I was thinking the same thing. I think that, yeah, dumb to put yourself in that situation, but... Past getting in that situation, everything he did was actually pretty smart. In fact, so, calling him the dumb criminal of the week. I, he's not even a criminal. He didn't get convicted. So the dumb guy of the week? S-C-O-T-W. Smart, smart criminal, criminal of the week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, uh, that's going to do it for us. Um, hey, we would love to hear from you. We've heard some from some of our listeners. Uh, you can give us some feedback. You can send us an email at denvercrimelaw at gmail.com. Denvercrimelaw, one word, at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter, is this legal pod? Facebook, Hebbits and McAllen. Uh, got anything, Russ? Anything else, Russ? Nothing else. Everyone, uh, be safe, and we'll be just anxiously anticipating a verdict in the Alex Murdoch case. We'll stay tuned. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Is This Legal? See you next time. <laughs>